This is your coffee break. Hey friends, I am here this week and I am really excited. I have an in-person interview, which I always love. This is with my new friend who I just met maybe five minutes ago. We go way back. Oh, yes. Five minutes. (laughs) All the way back to seven o'clock this evening. Uh, I have here uh, Professor... Just Patrick. Patrick, okay. (laughs) Patrick Hicks. He is a wonderful person, a wonderful writer, and I'm really excited for you to get to know him tonight. So, Patrick, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a real honor to be on. Thank you so much for asking me. Well, yes, of course. I'm glad we connected. So, yeah, you are the writer-in-residence at Augustana University. I am, yes. Um, I've been teaching at Augustana University now for 15 years, and I've been the writer-in-residence there since 2007. 2007, so coming up on 10 years. My goodness, yes. Uh huh. <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> so, um, do you like to define yourself with your teaching role, or with your writer role, or with your father role? Oh wow! Tell well, me I, more about yourself. That's a fun. <laughs> that's a fun question, and it's a really accurate question. I think uh, for all of us, uh, because we all compartmentalize our own lives, where we go to work and that's who we are, and then we go home and we're uh, you know a, a parent or. Um, uh, you know, a spouse, and and then maybe on the weekend we're like a hunting buddy or something. Uh, so I it I do the same thing, of course. But um, in my case, I would say that undergirding all of this is um, is the writer in mm. me because the writer is the one that cuts through everything that I do. The writer is the one that wonders how uh, being a father affects me and how being a a husband affects me, and and of course being a, a teacher as well. So uh, un, uh, that's the undergird of me is 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 the is the aspect of writing because I care so much about words and and how words shape our world. I love that. I'd love to hear you talk more about how words shape our world. I like that phrase. If we think about it, and we don't think about words as much as um, we take them for granted. Um, words can cut into somebody and and wound them. Words can also heal. You know, the very first um, phrase really in the Bible is this idea of, you know, the word Adam and, and Eve, for example. Adam's naming animals. You're a porcupine. You're a zebra. You know, whatever. So all of – and that's just one sort of uh, religious myth um, or, or, or religious belief that's out there. Words shape our world. And even just in our daily lives, I think in English – but that's just a blind accident of where I was raised. I could have easily have been born, uh, you know, somewhere else in the United States, and maybe Spanish would be the the language that would be shaping my world. Um, you know, and I'll just add one more thing. I know that everyone has had this experience where they're writing something, or maybe they're trying to say something to someone, and and they say, oh, "Hang on, that's not what I mean." Mm-hmm. And and we think, and then we go, "Oh, yeah, this is what I mean." So that tells me that although we think in language. There is a deeper thinking process that moves up into language, and language is sort of the amplification system for our thoughts. I love this. I kind of, I'm doing the little mind-exploding hand gesture right now. Um, (laughs) I have never thought of language that way, but now I don't know if I could think of it any other way. So thank you for that. Oh my gosh. So you think of yourself mostly as a writer, and you maybe, that's maybe your deepest definition of yourself. I'm curious where that came from for you. You know, from the beginning, I I was a writer. I was the I was always interested in words, and you know, I started writing some of my first short stories when I was six or seven years old, something like that. And I loved reading, um, and I always wanted to be a writer. I was that annoying person that you know you might have met in college. That's like I knew what I wanted to be, but the question for being a writer 
is, well, well, how do you support yourself? You know, it's one thing to say, I want to be a neurosurgeon. Um, And maybe there is a seven-year-old out there that wants to be a neurosurgeon. But, (laughs) you know, there's a pretty clear path for that in the United States anyway, for how you can become that if you're gifted enough and driven enough. But to become a writer, I mean, that's uh, like turning on a flashlight and walking through a dark forest. I mean, there is no path. You have Mm -hmm. to make the path. So I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but um, I think it took longer for other people to look at me and go, ah, you are a writer, because that only happens after publication mm-hmm. and when you are on programs like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting point. You know, you talk about there not really being a defined path to becoming a writer. And I've talked to many writers on the show, and they all have a different path. Yeah. Some of them have fallen into it. Some of them have started in corporate careers and done, you know, technical writing, corporate writing. So uh, when you teach writing at Augustana University, do you ever have students who ask you about that path? And then what do you tell them? Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I get this question pretty regularly from even prospective students that are interested in coming to Augustana. And I talk to them about um, what life might be like at Augustana. And I always find that to be a very, I always have a lot of fun with that. Uh, because the possibility is there that, hey, you might be my student. So that's always exciting. Uh, and then all the way up through, I, I was just uh, having lunch with a, a non-traditional student uh, a couple days ago, and she was interested in going back to graduate school to get her master's of fine arts in, in writing. So I get a wide range of, of students. Um, and I, I, I just be as honest as I possibly can about the business, because it's one thing to write in your journal, and it's one thing to maybe write um, stories and, you know, maybe send them out to a few literary journals. But it's it's a very different prospect when you're approaching publishing companies and you are confronted with the business of writing. Yes. I'm sure I'm sure actors are the same way. Oh, you know, I'm you sure. act in high school and you're like, this is what I want to do. And then you go to L.A. or New York and suddenly, you know, whoa, <laughs> this is very different from what I thought it might be. Yeah. And that's an interesting connection that that sort of disillusionment. And I go yeah. back to your neurosurgeon example. I mean, there is a very clear path. And with this, you are blindly fighting your way to a destination that may or may not ex- exist in the form that you expect it to exist. Yeah. So I'm just curious, what about your own journey? Mm. I said I started off um, young and I knew I wanted to be a writer. So I I did my undergraduate degree um, in central Minnesota because I'm a Minnesota boy. (laughs) Grew up in a river town in Minnesota. Uh And then I wanted that big American experience. So I moved to Chicago, which if you grow up, you know, in, in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis is big, but there's something about Chicago that's like, you know, a massive, big, you know, a shoulder with big, uh, a city with big shoulders, as Carl Sandburg called it. Yes. So I lived there and all the time I was writing, but I wasn't too sure how to get to the point of publication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was following uh, another path of trying to get my PhD at the same time. So Uh, I moved to Europe for many years. I was doing graduate work over there. Um, And after I got my PhD, that's when I was about 30 years old. And I realized, you know, you are writing a lot, but you're not publishing a lot. And if you are to call yourself a writer, you have to publish. So around the age of 30, that's when I really, really focused on the publication aspect of writing. And I would say that's when I really felt like a writer because the things I I was producing, I knew would find an audience. That is really exciting. Do you think that's changed today or maybe not so long ago for you with sort of the instant gratification of the internet where you can publish something and maybe immediately have an audience without a third party publisher? Oh, wow. I love that question because I am so grateful that the internet didn't exist when I was starting off <laughs> because I would have been that person that's like, wow, here's my short story and there it is. And, you know, maybe I try to get self published or, or put it up on, on the internet. And, 
oh, those stories needed to be lost and not seen by anyone because they were awful. And I'm not saying to anyone that's listening to this, your early stories are terrible. Maybe yours are fantastic, and, and I hope that's the case, but mine were not. I, I had to go through this long apprenticeship, and I had to keep at it. And I'm so grateful the world can never see what my apprenticeship was like. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your apprenticeship. Did you have like a mentor that you were um, sort of following during that time? Uh, I had the really good fortune of studying under some really wonderful writers and teachers, um, and often wonderful writers are not necessarily wonderful teachers. Uh-huh. Um, so, and I, I took that on board because there were a couple. There was one one person I studied under. I won't say who it is. He was very famous, uh, but notoriously gruff and almost rude. But I learned so much from him. Uh, so I'm really happy that I studied under him. And I studied under John Hassler, a giant in Minnesota literature. And he taught me an awful lot, not just about writing, but about how to how to be a writer, um, to think and interact with people and ask questions and things like that. And I studied under Richard Jones in Chicago. He was a poet, just an amazing poet. But those are the writers that I got to meet in the flesh. And then there are all of these other writers that taught me um, some of whom died long before I was born, like Charles Dickens and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And um, they taught me how to write, uh, even though I never met them. I love that idea. I see you have some papers in front of you. Yeah. Tell me about your papers. Uh, well, this is, um, we we talked about maybe, um, you know, talking about, well, not just my, my work, but my idea with fiction is I think that it's better to write what you don't know. You hear so often in writing classes and just sort of out there in the blogosphere, wherever it is, you know, write what you know. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think that it's really, really important to start off writing what you know, especially if it's poetry. But I find that it's more useful for me as a fiction writer to write what I don't know. And what I mean by that is, if I'm writing what I don't know, it means that I'm forcing myself to step outside of my comfort zone, and I then have to do some research And I find it really useful if I'm writing from the perspective of a woman, because that means Patrick, me, immediately has to be further in the background. And that character is in the foreground. And that's what it should be for fiction. So my novel about the Holocaust, The Commandant of Lubezech, you know, several of my main characters there, they're Jewish. So I had to step into their shoes. So I had to learn how to think about what it might have been like to be a Polish Jew in the 1930s and 1940s. And that necessarily meant that I was in the background and I had to care and think like a different person. And that's what you want for fiction, especially for a novel, because someone picks up a novel, they want to be absorbed by this dreamscape. And that works best if the writer, him or herself, is also dreaming the character. Mm. I feel like you could use that as like, you have a blog, that should be your blog title, like absorbing the dreamscape. Like that's just, <laughs> there's something really lovely yeah, about I should that. write that down or something. <laughs> you're, you're coming up with some good stuff here. How do you go about putting yourself, if you can put it into words, because it's sure. a very like abstract concept, but how do you go about putting yourself into someone else's shoes? At first I found it really challenging and now I don't find it challenging. I find it uh, exciting, really exciting. So so, for example, uh, I wrote a story called Burn Unit, uh, which was published a couple of years ago, and it's in my short story collection, The Collector of Names. And before I wrote it, I was wondering, well, where have I not seen a story set or take place? And I thought, well, I've never read a story that took place in a burn unit. And I thought, well, surely that must be pretty 
There's got to be a story there. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a burn unit. So I went to the um, Sioux Falls Fire Chief, who could not have been more of a gentleman and more helpful to me. Jim Sedaris, if you're listening, Captain <laughs> Sedaris, thank you. Um, he spent about half an hour, 45 minutes with me talking about what it was like to be a firefighter. Oh, so I was taking all of these notes, and he was telling me things I would never come up with on my own. Like, you know, if there's a fire inside the house when the windows break, uh, he said, it's really noisy. And I said, what does it sound like? And he said, it sounds exactly like a jet engine. Good description. Wow. I wrote that down. And then uh, a couple days later, I went to the burn unit at uh, Vera McKinnon, which is the hospital here in Sioux Falls. And a burn unit is not a place that you ever want to go or anyone that you love Mm. would go. But I got to shadow a nurse around and they put me in the scrubs and um, I got to see what was inside that burn unit. I actually got to talk to a burn victim. And I put these two stories together and made my own story. So I sort of cobbled together what uh, the fire chief was telling me and what the things that I'd heard in the burn unit. And I created this story, which is a part of me because I collected it, but it's not me at the same time. It's about a young eight-year-old girl that finds herself in a burn unit. So I don't know if that answers your question necessarily, but... You know what it does. And I think there's so many different ways that we can empathize. You've written things that you need to research by, like, physically going to locations. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that with a historical novel? Ah, yeah. Well, with my Holocaust novel, The Commandant of Lubezecz, I went to Berlin a few times, but I went to Poland on three separate occasions to do research at the concentration camps and Mm -hmm. the death camps. And that took um, almost two years of just uh, research. At the time, I'm, I'm still writing and I'm still learning. I'm still reading other books and reading documentaries, I got the opportunity, which I will never forget, of interviewing a survivor of Mm -hmm. um, Auschwitz. But to go to these places, it does something to you to be uh, walking around the soil of, say, a concentration camp. And that helped me to visualize what I needed to write in ways that I never would have come up with if I had stayed in Sioux Falls. I I probably could have written a Holocaust novel in Sioux Falls, but I'm positive that it, that it just would not have the immediacy or the authenticity or maybe even the, the, the empathy and sensitivity that it would need to have. Definitely. So when you're there taking all these things in, how do you record that for yourself? Do you have a notebook? Do you take pictures? Oh, yeah. Um, both. I, I take a camera. I take I take a ton of photos because I never know what will be useful for me when I get back to my desk here in the United States. And I take a huge notebook and I write down everything that crosses my mind, you know, uh, even like the birds, like how do mm-hmm. the birds sound? You know, what kind of birds are those? Or what kind of trees are around me? How does the sun look in the morning as it falls on buildings? These might seem like small details, but that's the lifeblood of good fiction. Because if I can see that, the reader can see it, and then they enter that dreamscape much more clearly. And when I come home to my desk, I, I put the <laughs> I put the book. I don't know how interesting this is. I put the book <laughs> on my desk, and I go line by line, and I add in those observations into the text. And it takes so long for me to do this, but um, I'm convinced that it adds... We think of the Holocaust as a black and white event because it took away, took place a long time ago. My job as a writer is to make it color mm. and to make the year 1944 now. And I can only do that if, if I take extraordinary steps towards observation. Mm, I love that. So then you not only go to a different place, but a different time. Yeah. What was that like for you? Did you, did you get your research mostly out of books or films or... Books and films, um, talking to people. Uh, my grandfather lived to be the age of 95, and he was uh, 
he was in Northern Ireland during during World War II, so you know he he experienced the Blitz, and I, I learned about that. I talked to him a lot about well, what was that like when mm-hmm. you were in your thirties and you see the rise of the Third Reich? You know, talk, tell me about that. So that's all very very helpful. But I do things now, uh, which I I know must be really strange to other people, but. I don't have um, people call them a phone, but to me it's like a fancy <laughs> phone is what I call it. But it's like everyone, yeah, that what you're holding up right now, yeah, bang, you know, it's like an iPhone. Oh yeah. Um, I just have this clunky old flip phone, and I do that intentionally because I don't want to have the ability to access the internet at any point in time because I worry that if I start to think that way, I will lose my ability to write effectively about the 1940s. And that is an inconvenience for people. I know I inconvenienced you. You said, hey, text me when you show up oh, at the no. studio. <laughs> and I didn't say anything, but I was like, I, I'm not I'll going to be her. able to. I will yeah. call her. Yeah. So. You know what? I love that because, um, so I just held up my phone and I have this shiny new iPhone 7. and Very pretty. It's Well, and it's rose gold, you know, which is, which is beautiful. But at the same time, it, it becomes a crutch. It becomes a crutch in a way that I don't need to really fully take in my surroundings when I'm somewhere because I know that I can take a picture of it or I don't fully, yeah. you know. And and so I think that there's something to be said for uh, eschewing technology just to enjoy a more rich and going back to your first point uh, when we started talking, seeing things as a writer. Yeah. You need to be able to take in those details. So I appreciate that. I just want to add this quickly. You know, I, I another reason I don't want, uh, you know, I'm not anti-technology or anything, but you know, I was, uh, I've been doing a lot of flying lately, and one of my pleasures is when I'm at the departure gate, everyone is on the phone, but I am watching everyone. I hope this doesn't sound like I'm creepy or something, but I'm watching people because in watching people how they, you know, how they cross their legs or how they furrow their eyebrows, you know, I'm thinking, oh yeah, my character would do that, and I really think that, and I'm also worried about. Uh, just the text messaging. I'm I'm afraid that I might start to not think in longer sentences. Mm. Now I could be totally wrong in this, but uh, every writer has to figure out what what makes the craft work for them, and this is what I have to do to to write what I want to write. Definitely, you could also text my mother, who who texts in like seriously like paragraphs. So <laughs> <laughs> there are different there are different ways to text. So I love the idea of seeing things as a writer sees them. I think that's really lovely. Um, is that part of what you teach your students in your writing class is like kind of how to see things or do you teach different things? Mm. Uh, it's really hard to help um, students see the world as a writer should see it. And we also, you know, I teach at Augustine University. So that's like uh, beginning writers. Mm. Um, they're just beginning with the tradecraft of writing. But I also teach at the MFA program at Sierra Nevada College. It's a long-distance sort of uh, thing where I work one-on-one with cool. a student. My, I'm working with a student right now that was born and raised in Norway, but she's living in China. So, And we're Skyping next week. It's like a 12-hour <laughs> time difference. But we make it work. You Good. Know? That's cool. Um, so when I work with those particular students in the MFA program, they're just working at a higher level. But getting people to sort of see what a writer should look for, that's really hard. And I'll try to summarize it in just this one example. You know, I, I can't play a musical instrument, but I'm pretty sure that if you were to ask a music teacher, can you teach me how to play the piano? They'll, they'll say, yes, I can. But what they can't teach me is how to hit the notes with passion mm. and how to hit the note so that it, you know, it rings in the air and isn't just there in the air. And, and that is really hard to teach, and I wonder if it can be taught. I, I don't have an answer for that. I don't either, but I, I understand what you're saying. And I, and I like the idea that you tie passion 
to the product, you know, to the ringing in the air. And yeah. I think that there's, I think there's a definite connection there. But again, hard to articulate. Very. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what you love about writing. Mm. Sorry, this is all over the place. But... No, I love. That. <laughs> I, I really appreciate this. You know, every every interview every interview is different, and I like that. There's we're moving around. It's very fluid. Okay, I, good. I, I enjoy that. <laughs> Um, I guess, you know, the answer that I maybe people would expect me to say is the greatest part about writing is publication. And yes, that's fantastic. Now, I've never run a marathon, but I'm pretty sure that uh, if you were to talk to a marathon runner, they don't do it for that moment when they cross the line. They do it to see if they can beat their own best time. They do it to see if they can endure that long. They do it because they want to see, you know, what Boston is like for a marathon or, you know, L.A. or London or something like that. So what I'm trying to get at is it's the process for me. I get the most joy out of taking an idea, which I'm not sure is going to work. It seems clunky, but I'm like really excited about it. And then I get it to work and I give it to my readers, my close readers, and it has some sort of impact on them. And then I send it out for publication. That's like what I really, really love. And publication is important to me, and I love that moment when a book arrives, but it's not quite as important as people outside of the trade might think it is. Interesting. You know, maybe it's like actors, you know. Yeah, it's cool when my movie comes out, but the real joy is working on the movie. Right, yeah. right. I mean, did you experience that as like a little bit of disillusionment the first time you were published to realize that like, oh, I haven't descended into a golden throne? Like. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that uh, I um, I learned very quickly, you know, my first poetry collection came out, my first full-length poetry collection came out, and I was elated. You know, I'd worked years for this, and it came out, and it was fantastic, and I came home, and I showed it to my wife, and she was just as elated, just as happy. We opened some champagne, and I was like, wow, this is great. Look, it's my book. Look, it's my book. And about an hour went by, and she said, Patrick, you still got to take the garbage out. So, <laughs> and that's healthy. You know, that's, that's a healthy. good story. That's healthy, you know, um, because your family keeps you grounded. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love that. That is a really good anecdote. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. She still tells me to, you know, it doesn't matter how, bo- how many books you have. Cut the grass, shovel the driveway. You're you know. still a person. The credits yeah. haven't rolled. You haven't. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, I love that. You went to Berlin mm-hmm. with your book kind of already written. Um, kind of already written. I'm only hesitating because um, the book that I have just finished, I guess we could maybe talk about that one. That one takes place during the Holocaust as well. Um, so I went to Berlin last year and I hadn't written the book, um, but I had a really good sense of what mm. the book was going to be like. So I was taking all of these notes and then I wrote the book and then I went back to Berlin in July of 2017. Uh, 2016. I don't time travel. 2016. (laughs) Um, And I went back that time because I wanted to see if what I wrote about Berlin was still accurate. Mm. So it was a a testing of like, okay, this is what you remember. This is what you wrote. Is this what you're seeing in front of you? And in some cases, the answer was no, (laughs) which was really good for me to, to be able to correct it. Plus, you know, a trip to Berlin. Yeah, to be surrounded by the language and Mm -hmm. to visit the concentration camp that I needed to go to. And and I learned new things, too. I mean, it's just there's just it's endless the the amount that you can learn about something. Mm. So by returning, there were a couple things that I learned that I had gotten wrong. Mm. You know, I just had gotten the history wrong, which kind of horrified me. I'm so grateful that I I had a chance to fix it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, certainly. Yeah. Do you notice that traveling has an effect on your writing? And I don't mean that in the sense that, of course, I'm seeing new things. I'm going to be writing about different things. But 
I'm really interested in, because I know when I travel, um, I write differently. Yeah. And, and I'm curious if you have any insight on that. Or if yeah. it's just me being weird. No, you're not being weird. I think <laughs> I think that's one of the great things about travel. We become different human beings when we travel. Uh, whenever I go somewhere else, like when I was in Berlin, oh, I was just in Boston a couple days ago. And as I'm walking around, I, there was a part of me that felt, you're not supposed to be here. You know, and people are moving around me on the sidewalk. And, you know, I'm in a grocery store and, I'm, and you're not supposed to be here. So it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's um, kind of a... You're, you're ripped out of your own time and space and you're seeing things that you shouldn't be seeing, but yet you are. And this is even amplified so much more when you go to another country because suddenly the mailboxes look different. The buses are different. It's a different language. Often the sunlight looks different. Mm. I sort of mentioned that already. So you begin to notice these things. And I think that it cracks open the generosity in your heart more. Thank you for saying that. That is, I, I like thinking about that. I want to know about your newest book. The one I'm working on right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I haven't, I won't tell you exactly what it's about because uh, it hasn't been published yet. Fair, fair. Um, <laughs> but I will say that it involves an aspect of the Holocaust that um, is little known here in the United States. And I'm really looking forward to hopefully signing a contract soon knock on wood, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so that it can be published. Because I, I am really hoping that when it's published, I'll be able to um, tour around. Because I think what I write about with this particular novel, it's something Americans don't know about, but really should know something about. And I'm sorry I'm being totally no, playing it's... my cards close to my chest on this one. I'm really pleased with it, though, and I'm hopeful that it'll get published soon. Good. I think that's just good marketing. You know, you kind of put the teaser out there yeah. and all right, now we're, now we're interested. Yeah. Everybody's leaning forward a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you come back and then you can talk about, you know, the, the wonderful sparkling success that it has been. Uh, yes. I here, here. I'll do that. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So why the Holocaust? That's, you know, that's a question I get asked a lot. And I, I understand why I get asked that question a lot because I'm not Jewish. Uh, you know, I'm an Irish Catholic kid from Minnesota. So I'm not a natural fit, or you know, why would I write about it? And I don't really have a satisfactory answer for this. Um, and the answer I'll give you will be even less satisfying. But That's I okay. think that stories sometimes choose us mm-hmm. rather than we choosing stories. And it seems a little mystical and a little weird. But from a young age, I was exposed to the Holocaust. And there's something about that event, about how we can treat each other that way. And it's not a question of Germans and Jews. Um, those were human beings that did that to other human beings. And that is truly horrifying to me. Mm -hmm. And when I look at it through that particular prism, um, I feel a moral responsibility to write about it. Because by writing about it, maybe in some small way I memorialize it and to get people to talk about it. But maybe, and more importantly, maybe I can get people to start asking some very difficult questions about can this happen again? And how strong are the forces of hatred? And what are our moral obligations as citizens to stop it? So you process these questions mm-hmm. while you're writing about mm-hmm. this topic. You spoke earlier about your favorite part of writing being the effect that it has on the reader. Um, what sort of effect would you like that to you know, evoke in your readers? Kind of those same questions or something else? Um, and it depends on what I'm writing, I suppose. With the Holocaust, I... I'm hoping that I can help readers see that historical event in maybe a new way and hopefully a helpful way. 
Uh, but um, I wrote a collection of poems called Adoptable, which is about my son. My wife and I adopted a beautiful little boy from Korea. And that collection is about what it means to raise a transnational, transracial and internationally adopted child. Um, so uh, what I'm hoping readers get out of that is going to be very different mm-hmm. from, obviously, my, my novels. So it kind of depends on what the project is that hmm. I'm working on. That's a good point. Do you kind of go in looking to explore a theme or do you go in looking to tell a story or some mix of the two? When I start off writing, and this is true for poetry and for um, fiction, I have an idea of what I want, and I I aim for that, but almost always the arc and the trajectory of what I discover is not the target. It's something Mm, else, mm -hmm. and almost all the time, it's better than Mm -hmm. what I was aiming for. So to me, it's a learning process. I'm like, I thought I was going to learn this, but actually I learned this, and this is way better. I love that you say that. Uh, One of my older podcast episodes, I talk about my favorite part of writing, Mm -hmm. which is when you're able to surprise yourself. Oh, yeah. Which is these things come out of you that you did not plan and you did not expect, and yet there they are. And just kind of thinking about, you know, unraveling them or maybe raveling them back to where they came from and just trying to figure out who we are as people. I mean, that's just, it's such a great experience to surprise yourself like that. And especially with fiction, my attitude is if I'm not surprised by what happens in the first draft, there is no way the reader's going to. So if my character does something where I'm like, whoa, what is this? (laughs) I always follow it because if I'm like, whoa, what is this? The reader will be too. Yes, exactly. Oh, my gosh. I love that. So you went into fiction, Mm -hmm. although it sounds like maybe poetry first or... I started off with poetry to help me with the tradecraft, just to Mm. understand how words spark off of each other and just how to build tight, economical, powerful sentences um, that are then just broken up and and things like that. That's, you know, the the poem. I I like to classify myself as a fiction writer who happens to have some skill as a poet. But if someone said door A or door B, I I would feel more like I should be in the fiction but I feel more of a magnetic pull towards fiction. But I, boy, I love poetry. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. Mm. That's an interesting question. You talk about blurring lines and genres. What sort of genre would you classify your work as? And what do you think about uh, genres as a whole? Mm. I think genres are useful for pigeonholing things. And um, I think that's great for marketing. You know, mm. what, what kind of book is this? Oh, it's a mystery. You know, mm-hmm. It goes in that box. Oh, this is a thriller. It goes in this box. Mm-hmm. This is a uh, chiclet. Um, But I think that it's, I mean, people are more complicated than that. You know, we can't be easily pigeonholed. Um, And it's the same with books. So my Holocaust novel, The Commandant of Lubezet, yes, it's clearly fiction. And yet it, I've had so many people tell me it reads like nonfiction. And I was striving for that, actually. Um, And I actually have real sources that are in my Holocaust novel. Like these are real memoirs. And I actually quote them in the novel. So I blur the boundary between fiction and nonfiction because I want the reader to ask questions of, well, how do we remember history and and memory? And um, these are really important questions, especially with the Holocaust, because we're losing our survivors. And about another 20 years, there will be no living biological memory of the Holocaust. And, you know, what does that story look like then? Mm -hmm. And I worry about that. That reminds me of Tim O'Brien and the things we carried talking about Mm. truth and story truth. And even beyond that, I I like what you've done even more. And that is honestly blur the two and honestly combine the two. And so I really appreciate that. 
I love that you uh, – Tim O'Brien is one of my literary heroes. Um, and actually, he, there's a blurb on my book from Tim O'Brien. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah. When I found out that <laughs> Tim O'Brien gave me a blurb and he'd read the book and he really loved it, it, it was like – the Beatles landing in America. You know, that was me like, oh, my God. I was just so, I mean, I, I just am such a deep admirer of what Tim O'Brien has done for American letters that it, I, it was just, you know, one of the highlights of my career that you know, my literary hero is like, yes, that's a good book. You know? Gosh. Yeah, well, was, talk about validating. That was a good day. Good grief. <laughs> so, like, did you did you ask him or did you not know he was going to be reviewing your book? Or um, I had reached out to ask him for a blurb and I hadn't heard from him for, for quite a while. And then the blurb just arrived, just like, <laughs> bang. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That is amazing. Do you have other literary heroes that you look up oh. to? My goodness. I mean, there's so many. Just um, all of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and in this country, but also in, in Britain. And there have been some that have passed on recently, um, which was hard. But And then there are writers that I would love to meet, like Pat Barker. Uh, she's a British novelist. And my goodness, I mean, whenever Pat Barker has a new book come out, I always run to get it because I love her work. And I would love to have a coffee with her. Um, but then there are other writers that I have become friends with that I deeply admire their work, but they happen to be friends. And so I'm now in this weird space where, you know, so-and-so, I go out for a beer, so-and-so, I know their book's coming out, and then I buy it, and I'm blown away when I read it. But, you know, they're now my friend. So it's, that's, it's kind of a weird place for me to find myself now. Yeah, that is. That's beautiful. And like you said, you know, at the end of the day, we're all taking out the garbage. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Gosh. You teach mm -hmm. uh, for a living. What are some of the most, I guess, valuable lessons that you find yourself imparting to your students? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I'll just leave that open-ended. That's a good question. And I, I, I'm I, hesitant. You can tell mm -hmm. by my body language. I'm a little hesitant hey, to you, answer You it. sat back right away. Yeah, because I don't want to sound like I'm the sage on the stage, that I know everything. And now it's like, here's some wisdom for you. And, here's some... <laughs> and it doesn't feel that way to me. I think mm. here's how I would answer that question. If I can get a student to start writing about something that is important to them, that maybe they were fearful about accessing earlier, mm -hmm. but now they're writing about it in a beautiful and thoughtful and compelling way, and maybe they're seeing aspects of themselves that were always there, but they hadn't had a chance to light up, I find that really useful because they have unlocked part of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and writing doesn't necessarily need to be therapeutic. Um, you know, maybe I can give you a, another a more concrete example. Uh, I will say sometime in the recent past, rather than give you a semester, because I don't want to give away oh, who this sure. student may or may not be. And I'm going to make it gender neutral. This particular student was a person of color. I, I encourage this student to write about their experiences and, you know, stop trying to write about things that you think the class would like. Mm -hmm. And as soon as this particular young woman did that, oops, I gave it away. <laughs> young, uh, yeah. her, her, her work was so much better. Mm. You know, it was just, I, I felt there was like this floodgate that had opened. I, so I can only imagine she must have felt that way too. Boy, I hope so. Yeah. That's something that I know my listeners um, do struggle with a lot. A lot of my listeners are aspiring writers mm -hmm. and maybe have published one or two things, but still find themselves struggling with fear. Yeah. 
and overcoming that fear. Is that something that a lot of students struggle with? And how do you help them over that hurdle? Mm. Is it is it fear of publication or fear of that's a good, writing? Or? It's a great question. It might be fear of what happens when I let this out, or it might mm. be fear of I don't even want to face what might be in here. So I think actually that's a good point. I think the fears do stem from different places. Fear of publication also being one of them. Yeah, I think so, especially if it's personal. Mm-hmm. Um, the great thing about publication is you don't really get to, you don't really see your readers. You're kind of aware mm. that it's happening in sort of an abstract way, but you don't see your readers. So I tell my creative writing classes that what they're doing is far more brave because they bring in a story and they are there. They're confronted with the 14 people in that classroom that have read their story. And they get that takes way more guts and bravery, really, than what I'm doing. Oh, my gosh. Uh, if you think about it that way, you know, they're, they're confronted right there in the mm-hmm. workshop. So that's one type of fear. And I get that. And I want to help my students get over that because I think that you need you need to – uh, allow that give and take of work. But the other type of fear, which I really struggle to help my students understand, is that when you're writing and you write a sentence where you're like, whoa, I don't know if I want to explore this. I'm not sure I should say that. Mm-hmm. I always tell my students, whenever you feel in your head or you hear that line of like, I don't know if I should write that, you got to write that <laughs> and you got to keep going because that's where the goodness is. So whatever scares you to write, that's what you should be writing. Boom. That's wonderful advice. And at one point, did you struggle with similar fears as well? I did. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just finished this piece, which um, it's a nonfiction piece, which weaves you know, my fa- my mother was born in Northern Ireland and I'm an Irish citizen and the Titanic was built in Belfast. Mm-hmm. And I had this crazy idea of weaving the story of the Titanic with the uh, with my uncle who died in a car accident in 1973. Um, and I'd always wanted to write about that. But I wasn't sure how to do it because uh, I wanted to be sensitive to my mother's mm-hmm. feelings. It was her sibling, of course. Mm-hmm. Even that using the past tense all these decades later was her sibling. So I wanted to be sensitive to it. But at the same time, I had to write about it from my perspective. So sometimes, um, you know, I said, you know, write what you need to write. But I think that you have to also be aware of, well, what, what might this writing do to the people that I love? And on a couple of occasions, I've written poems that... I've shown to my wife, and she says, I don't, I don't want people to know that. Mm. I'm like, okay, even if it's a good poem, I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, so I'll, I'll do something else with it. And that's good. That's good to keep in mind that, you know, at the end of the day, your words are powerful. They do uh, evoke emotions and thoughts in, in readers, and, and we want to be very, you know, intentional and caring about what we're putting out there. Yeah. Yeah, I think we have an obligation to, to think about the ones that are around us and those we love. Um, I sometimes wonder and maybe worry about that collection of uh, adoption poems, mm-hmm. Adoptable. I published that uh, when my son was three years old. He had no say in that. Mm-hmm. And I, some, I, I, I hope he's proud of it. But maybe when he's 18 or 20 or 40 or 50 years old, maybe there are some poems that he wishes that I didn't publish. And I'm only sort of realizing that now. Yeah. So I don't know what to do with that, I guess. Yeah. I feel like I have a similar thing, but I also feel like it trivializes what you said. So I'm wrestling with saying it, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's I have a lot of friends who have new babies and they're putting pictures of them on Facebook. Mm. And, you know, they're not like, you know, they're like naked baby pictures. And it's like, well, one day when this person grows up and like wants to date, there's all these things out there that have been memorialized and created about them. And 
This goes back to what I was talking about earlier with my apprenticeship. And yes. I'm glad I'm not. It's it's not on the internet. Yet. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't post a lot of photos of my son on the internet for that very reason because it's his digital life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not. I'm not critiquing your oh, your yeah. friends. This no. is the choice that I've made. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. Just kind of going back to um, how these things we create. You know, they belong to us, but then. They belong to others as well. And yeah. maybe even with, um, you talk about inheriting stories with, you know, your work with the concentration camps and soon all those survivors, you know, won't be around anymore. And then who carries on with those stories? Who owns those stories and how they still affect us? Sorry, that's, this is just me rambling at this point. <laughs> One thing I do want to end on mm-hmm. is um, if people are interested in learning more about you or maybe purchasing some of your books, what do they do? Um, well, I guess the, the easiest thing, my website is www.patrickhicks.org, or you, know, you can get my books um, anywhere online. I suppose Amazon is the obvious place, um, but if you have a local bookseller, it would be nice to support them because uh, they do amazing work, especially if you are listening to this and you're beginning as a writer. The people that are most likely to host you for a reading is that independent bookstore. So um, maybe get it from them. Oh my gosh, I love that you said that. Support your local bookstores. Yes, thank you for saying that. Patrick, thank you for being smart and wonderful. Thank you for sharing this time with me and with my listeners. Uh, I can say on behalf of them, we deeply appreciate it and have learned a lot tonight. So, and in fact, well, and and I want to go home and write right now. Oh, good. Mission accomplished. (laughs) We'll do that. (laughs) Number two pencil. (laughs) There you go. Thank you again. And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. I love that. All right. Thank you. Thank you.